Hello to all our attendees and welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Armina Ishkanyan and I'm Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program at the International Inequalities Institute and an Associate Professor in the LSE Department of Social Policy. In recent weeks, we have seen a huge number of anti-racism protests all over the world following the horrific killing of George Floyd in the United States. Protests have also taken place in towns and cities across the UK, from London to Bristol, Manchester to Birmingham. These protests highlight the need to address racial inequalities within all areas of society, inequalities that COVID-19 has brought into stark view due to the disproportionate impact of the virus on ethnic minority populations. I'm delighted that we can use this event as a platform for discussion and I'm pleased to introduce an esteemed panel of speakers in the order that they will speak today. Our first speaker will be Ross Warwick, who is a research economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, IFS. Ross and Lucinda Platt have recently published new research on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Britain's ethnic minorities. Our second speaker will be Mikdad Asaria, who is an assistant professorial fellow in the LSE Department of Health Policy. Mikdad is a health economist with extensive experience in both academic and policymaking settings, and his research interests include health inequalities and health financing. Next is Lucinda Platt, who is Professor of Social Policy and Sociology in the Department of Social Policy at the London School of Economics. Her research focuses on inequalities, particularly those relating to ethnicity and migration, gender and disability, and she has published widely in these areas. Finally, our last speaker is Kahinda Andrews, who's Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. Kahinda is an academic, activist, and author whose books include Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. With us today is also Heidi Safia Mirza, who is Emeritus Professor of Equality Studies at the UCL Institute of Education and Visiting Professor of Race, Faith and Culture at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Heidi is known for her pioneering intersectional research on race, gender and identity in education. Heidi will be moderating the event today. For those in the audience who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19, all one word. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be an opportunity for you to put your questions to any or all of us following the presentations. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to Heidi, who will moderate the panel discussion. It would be great if you could let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni, and incoming students, so please do let us know if this is you. Now, without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to our first speaker, Ross Warwick. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction and, and to LSE for um, organising the event today. 
Uh, so I'm just going to present a, some very brief um, findings, largely from, from research that myself and Lucinda have done as, as part of the IFS's Deaton Review, which is a, a wide-ranging review of inequalities funded by the Nuffield Foundation, but also drawing on other ongoing uh, research which is relevant to the, the topic of discussion today. So to start with, I wanted to just lay out the overall picture um, in terms of COVID-19 mortalities by ethnic group in England and Wales. And this graph shows um, that picture as of the 15th of May. So here we have the, the grey bars showing the number of COVID-19 fatalities uh, by ethnic group uh, per 100,000 of that population. And I think the first key message to take away from this, group, from this graph is that there's a huge amount of variation between uh, different ethnic groups in the number of deaths that they've suffered. Um, but in addition, there's a lot of variation between minority populations. So if we compare, for instance, the, the Black Caribbean population, which has suffered fatalities at a rate almost four times that of the Chinese population. So there's not one single story here in terms of comparing um, the majority population to, to all minorities. The second key message um, from this picture that I'd emphasize is that although it's a, a really useful starting point and does give um, an impression of the overall impact of uh, the health crisis on different populations, it doesn't account for the very different profiles of different groups um, in the country. And when I say different profiles, I think two key um, characteristics that are important to take into account are both age and more broadly demographics and also geography. And these are two key risk factors because uh, the virus has had quite distinct impacts on different um, groups depending on their age and on where they live. And these same characteristics also have distinct profiles for different ethnic groups in the country. So starting with geography, it's well known that many ethnic minorities are concentrated in specific parts of the country. For instance, in 2011, almost 60% of the black population lived in London. And clearly, certain parts of the country have been hit harder by the virus as well, London being um, a prime example of that. But also earlier on in the, um, in the crisis, we had a particular hotspot in, in Birmingham where there's a large Pakistani population. And just now we see, we see Leicester um, another extremely ethnically diverse city um, really bearing the brunt of, of the virus. So overall, it looks like geography does make most ethnic minorities more exposed to the health risks of the coronavirus. However, importantly, going in the other di direction, we have the fact that most minority groups are also disproportionately young. And it's been well documented that uh, there's been a really striking concentration of, of overall deaths from coronavirus in older age groups. So just to give a sense of how big these differences in, in the demographic profile of different ethnic groups is, this graph shows us the age distribution for um, some of the main ethnic groups in, in England and Wales. And take, for instance, the percentage of each population that's over the age of 60. For the white British population, that's more than 25%. Amongst the Pakistani, Bangladeshi and, and Black African populations, that percentage is more like 5% or less. Um, so really big differences in demographic profiles, which are important to take into account. So thinking about overall disproportionalities 
in mortality, um, it's important to account for these key characteristics which, which imply different risks to populations in the aggregate. So what I'm going to do here is show an illustration of, of those um, disproportionalities after accounting for the role of geography and demographics in the overall picture of fatalities. So first off, I'm going to show this blue bar. And what this blue bar shows is a prediction of um, mortality for each ethnic group relative to the white British majority if just their geographic and demographic profiles were driving, um, were driving fatalities from COVID. And what we see here is that if these were the two um, drivers, the only two drivers, almost all ethnic minorities would be predicted to have fewer uh, fatalities than the white British majority. The exception here being the Black Caribbean population, which does have a, a relatively, elderly, relatively older age profile and is also concentrated in parts of the country uh, which have been hit hard by the virus. So that's the prediction based on those two key um, characteristics. If we compare this to the actual um, fatalities, again, relative to the white British majority, as shown by the red bars, what we see here is that for most ethnic minorities, the actual number of fatalities, it, it far exceeds the, the prediction based on geography and demographics. And in some cases, quite substantially so. So um, again, amongst the Pakistani, Bangladeshi and Black African communities, um, this excess fatality is about twice, twice that of the, of the um, prediction. And the ONS has done analysis looking at the same kind of um, considerations and found similar conclusions, while also highlighting that these ethnic inequalities and disproportionality are particularly large um, for men. So this obviously raises the question as to what is going on to explain these, these disproportionalities. Uh, and one explanation could be occupational exposure. Clearly, those in um, key worker roles and those that have continued to go to work throughout the, throughout the crisis are likely to have been more exposed to the virus on average. And key worker employment is most common in the black population in the country. So this graph here shows the, the percentage of the working age population of a number of minor of a number of ethnic groups uh, working in either health and social care or uh, another key worker role. And here we see that amongst the, the black African population, the prevalence of the, this type of employment is about 50% higher than the population as a whole. And again, the ONS has, has looked at um, differences in mortality by by the type of jobs that people do and found that there are big differences uh, with some of the highest mortality rates in roles where ethnic minorities are particularly concentrated. So there is evidence kind of pointing towards this as a key explanation, even if that direct link at the individual level hasn't quite yet been made. Underlying health conditions are also like to play some kind of role. role. It's well known that there's um, long-standing uh, in inequalities in underlying health pre-crisis. And just to give a sense of, of that, this graph shows the prevalence of uh, at-risk health conditions in different age brackets for different minority groups, again, relative to the white British majority. And the kind of conditions um, this covers is things like diabetes, blood pressure and circulation problems, and so on. 
And what we see is that in middle age and older age brackets, the prevalence of these conditions is much higher than the white British ethnic group. Um, so this seems to be an important fact to take into account. And indeed, some emerging research using hospital records, which can um, account for these kind of um, considerations at the individual level, has identified that comorbidities can explain some differences between um, the, the, the rate of fatalities between ethnic groups, uh, but it can't explain the full picture. So just to wrap up, um, I think the overall uh, conclusion emerging from what we have seen so far is that much still remains unknown. There are a lot of there are clearly inequalities in health outcomes and in, in fatalities in particular, but we don't fully understand um, why just yet. Um, it does seem like comorbidities and occupational exposure probably play a role, but the exact importance of, of each explanation uh, and other explanations I haven't mentioned in this short presentation it is not really well known just yet. Um, it's understandable that a lot of the focus at the moment is on these um, on these very these immediate effects um, in terms of uh, deaths in the community, but I think it's also important to think about the the longer term economic effects arising from um, this this crisis and the implications that those will have for inequalities between ethnic groups, because those will also feed back into health inequalities as well. Um, and again, we certainly don't understand the full extent of those right now. But for instance, one thing that we've documented in our research at the IFS is that some groups in society have been hit particularly hard by the lockdown. Um, and if we're looking at ethnic groups, uh, it's Bangladeshi and Pakistani men who are particularly like to work in, in sectors which have been shut down and the longer term impacts of that on on families and on labor market outcomes in the medium term uh, is something that we should definitely be mindful of. To end on a slightly more positive note, um, we should also bear in mind that there might be opportunities to address inequalities coming out of this um, crisis as well. Um, some of those might not be directly linked to um, ethnicity per se, for instance, changing changing work patterns, but some of them are much more clearly linked to ethnic inequalities. So whether it's to do with public awareness of the, um, the depth and the persistence of some of these inequalities, especially given um, Black, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements around the world, or whether it's a, a slightly more um, indirect effect given um, people's, more and more people now being um, interacting with the benefit system uh, and valuing different types of work in different ways and the way that this could feed through into um, ethnic inequalities as well. Uh, and with that, I think I'll um, wrap up and pass back to Armin. Thanks, Ross. I appreciate that. That was a very informative and interesting presentation. I have lots of questions, but obviously we've got to move on to our next speaker. So um, I'll turn to Mikdad, please. Um, I don't know if you're using slides. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much. So when um, I was thinking about what to say today, I got an email from Heidi saying that as a researcher of color and, and who researches inequalities, why don't you say something personal about how you've approached this, this crisis and, and, and what it's meant to you? And, and so I, I was kind of scrolling through Twitter as, as I kind of tend to do in, in this 
uh, lockdown, trying to understand what's going on in the world. It's kind of my window to the world. And I noticed that uh, the West Indies are coming on tour, on a test match tour next week uh, to England. And I thought, I kind of, it struck me the parallels between cricket and, and the current times, you know, and, and cricket, you know, as we know, is a quintessential game of empire, you know, so much so that you even wear whites when you play cricket, you know, that's, it's like the clothes you wear are called whites. And, and, and it's kind of a game, uh, you know, it's shaped by this set of written and, and unwritten rules, you know, and, and, and they, they give this, give rise to this kind of peculiarly English kind of sense of fairness, you know, and, and, and this term that says, it's just not cricket, you know, that, that's what English mean by fairness. And, 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 you know, English people, I think, they, they love to show that they're following the rules, or, or as Boris likes to say, following the science, you know, and, and, and if the rules and the science don't match up to what they're doing, then they're, they're happy to change the rules and the science, but, but they, they do like to make sure that they're following the science, you know, and so, so I was thinking back to how does all of this relate back to me. And I was remembering growing up in the 80s, you know, and, and I, I was remembering watching, uh, you know, completely in school, watching Kurt uh, Lee Ambrose and Courtney Walsh bowling those bounces to the English cricket team and, and the English not knowing how to deal with these at all. And, and so in the end, and, 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 you know, the whole kind of post-colonial world was basically cheering on these, these bowlers bowling these bounces. And, and, and then the English changed the rules, you know, and they said that that's just not cricket. You can't, you can't bowl bouncers. That's that's not allowed anymore. And I was just devastated. Like, how how have they done this? How have they completely defused this whole way of, of playing the game? And then, but you know, just at that moment, um, it was okay because then the Pakistanis took over, and then Wakar Yunus and, and Wasim Akram came along, and they they started bowling reverse swing. You know, and again, the, the English batsmen were completely befuddled by this like ball doing weird things that they just couldn't understand. And so they decided that wasn't allowed as well. That was cheating. You're not allowed to bowl in a way that we can't play. So they changed the rules again, you know? And, and, and I quickly learned as a child growing up in England that the rules of the game are rigged and, and they're rigged in a way that post-colonial people always end up at the bottom. And, 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 and the, the kind of peculiarly British bit of this is that we're told that it's fair because the rules say it's fair. And, and that to me is, is kind of, structural inequalities, you know, and you see this in school growing up, both in, in the kind of curriculum you're taught and in how you're treated by the teachers and by the school. You see this, um, how you're treated in the streets. You see this, how you're treated by the police when you stop and search. You see this in the media and in how people write about you. I mean, even the, the prime minister, you can, can see the kind of things he writes about black people or Muslim people. Um, you see this at work. You see this, so the whole rules of the game were completely rigged. And, and I mean, as if to rub it in, at, at the time, you know, the conservative minister, um, Norman Tevitt, told us that uh, South Asians and Caribbeans need to learn that they're only considered worthy to be in this country uh, if they recognize that they need to support England and, and they, need to, they need to learn how to play cricket our way and by our rules, right? And of course, this has its basis in, in the kind of this English history of, of colonialism, and crusades and slavery and the Christian missionaries and, and all of this stuff that, that's very much predicated on racial hierarchy. And, and of course, of course, the English being the English, they, they have a science for this. They, they have the rules of the game. And, and so they developed kind of eugenic sciences and, and you've got people like uh, Galton and, and et cetera, who made 
this science to show that um, that non-white people are, are biologically inferior uh, and the savages and then the, the Muslims and the Africans, they, they need to be civilized. Um, and, and there's a whole scientific underpinning. And, and actually the, the English thought that they were doing us a favor by coming and uh, doing these things for us, right? And so, so you can see these deep historical uh, notions. And then you look at society now that you still have similar racial hierarchies and you see that these rules, they, they shape the opportunities that people have in life. Uh, they shape where people are living. They shape what you can achieve in education. They shape what you can do with your job. They shape your access to green space. They shape your exposure to air pollution. They shape your access to nutritious food. They shape all of these things and they shape what we as health economists call the social determinants of health. And when you're, so, you're kind of so um, structurally deprived uh, in terms of social determinants of health, uh, you find that you're more sick. You're more sick, you have more illnesses, and, and you're more vulnerable to, to then diseases like COVID, right? And then um, you also have this kind of response from the health service. And again, the health service, based on this kind of history of slavery, where they've made this science to say that black bodies don't feel pain in the same way as white bodies, treats you differently as well. And, and so not only are you more vulnerable, but you're also less likely to get adequate treatment when, when you get the treatment. And so, so COVID comes around and we see who are dying at disproportionate rates. Well, guess who? Black and Muslim people, you know, like, and, and we can say, sorry, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Black, African, whatever, but we know it's, it's Black and Muslim people, right? And, and COVID is, is kind of really interesting because we don't have any science for COVID. It, we, it's kind of like this new disease where we don't know anything about it. And so, so we've had to fall back on our assumptions on, on what we believe. And, and that's kind of brought out the, the really ugly things that are deep inside uh, a lot of our assumptions, right? And, and so, and it's, it's kind of been bizarre how, how this lockdown is, is somehow it's paused life and it feels like nothing's changed, but somehow it's fast forwarded life. And all of those inequalities in society have just gone at this rapid pace and, and things you'd see that develop over a lifetime are happening in weeks and, and people are dying because of these inequalities at a, a rapid pace. And, and when you look at why is that going on, we saw a lot of this in, in Ross's presentation. We, we know who's been forced to work during lockdown, who are the essential workers. And, and by that, I don't just mean NHS staff, but also the cleaners, the security guards, the bus drivers, the minicab drivers, the Uber drivers, who are in precarious jobs? Who are the people who have been impoverished during lockdown? There's a report out this morning saying that half of black households are living in poverty, right? Who are the people who are losing their jobs? Who don't get sick pay? Who, you know, you can go on and on. Who have no recourse to public funds, um, et cetera, right? Who has to pay to use their energy? So, so all of these things make people, and, and, and obviously these people also have more comorbidities, so they're more vulnerable to catching COVID, they're more vulnerable to getting bad experiences of COVID, and they have a less, they have a worse experience of the health system. So all of these things compound to say that um, these people will do worse in COVID. It's, it shouldn't be a surprise. But then when you look at the research, you see something extraordinary. You see that, uh, and, and I, I sit on a lot of these kind of committees that report into SAGE and whatever else, and you see a lot of these kind of preprint studies coming through, and they say, well, you can't just compare white people to, to other people because they live very different lives. So we need to adjust for that. And we need to make sure that um, we're comparing like with like. So let's, ca let's cancel out the fact that they live in worse housing. Let's cancel out the fact that they have worse jobs. Let's cancel out all of those facts. Let's imagine there was fairness in the world and then compare 
let's adjust all of that and let's compare these these people with each other and think what are you talking about so so basically what you're telling us is let's not interrogate the rules of the game we need to locate the cause of these excess deaths in in those inferior bodies and in the savage cultures of these people we, we can't locate it in the structural racism because that's just not cricket you know we need to we need to make sure and and then obviously the, the consequence of that is that we start looking at interventions to tackle this illness of being not white you know we, we start looking at vitamin d as the solution right we start looking at how do we civilize these muslims to stop them going to mosques or stop them flying covid in from pakistan right we i mean i was on a webinar yesterday where there was a suggestion that in leicester they're going to put checkpoints in around south asian neighborhoods to keep the weaponized brown bodies out and, and away from polluting the white population yeah it's like it's bizarre and, and just to finish uh in the midst of all this we obviously had the, the horrendous murder of george floyd and and you know the police officer sat on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and the official uh, reason for his death given was that it was his comorbidities he didn't die because he was strangled it was his comorbidities and it's bizarre that the parallels right and, and i guess uh, just thinking of, of the black lives matter uh, movement that, that's kind of there here at the time and i don't know too much about this but but it reminds me a little bit of, of Malcolm X and, and civil rights where uh, he decided that he's just not playing the game. He's not playing cricket. The game is rigged. The game is broken. Let's not play. And, and looking at how, uh, at least in this country, uh, that that slaver statue came down, it wasn't through petitions. It wasn't through playing the game that's rigged against you. It was by any means necessary. You know. And so I feel there's an important lesson in this about how we as, as people who are disempowered disproportionately impacted by COVID need to think about our response, you know, do we continue playing this rigged game or are there ways for us to think about uh, changing the game? And, and I think that's something we can hopefully pick up in the discussion. Thanks very much, Mikdad. I really appreciate your presentation. And I'm glad that Heidi asked you to reflect in that way. I think you know you're sharing the personal perspective, but also drawing us to think about the historical legacies and the origins of structural inequalities and the rigged rules of the game. I think it's really important, and hopefully, in the discussion, we can talk about the social, political, and structural determinants um, that you brought up in your presentation. So thanks very much. So the next speaker is Lucinda Platt. Lucinda, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Amina. And uh, uh, thank you to um, Mithgad and, and Ross for those um, uh, very compelling presentations. Um, so I, some of the things I was, uh, wanted to touch on, I think, have already been, been picked up in those discussions. But I wanted to, I thought what I would come to this discussion with was more focus on policy. Um, and perhaps the, ins the insufficiency of policy. Um, and I would do that by talking about the Public Health England um, report uh, um, that came out quite recently on um, disparities in COVID and mortality. And the reason, one of the reasons why I thought I would talk about this report um, and how it was published um, was um, because I participated in one of the early stakeholder events um, that were held. There were many stakeholder events held that encompassed a wide range of voices. And many of these 
people who were participating were pointing out some of the frustration, some of the anger, some of the fact that these, some of um, frustration with the discourses that Mink Dad has expressed, um, and some of the sense that uh, why would we expect otherwise? So the, we have to see this in the context of wider inequalities. So this report was commissioned when it was clear um, from the sorts of uh, statistics that Ross has published, was talking about, it was clear from these sorts of statistics that there were clear ethnic disproportionalities in deaths from COVID. And there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of frustration about this. And it was thought that Public Health England might therefore come up with some um, clear guidance, some, some um, recommendations. Um, so there was corresponding, I think, disappointment uh, when the report that was published, which covered, covered lots of um, areas of disparities, um, uh, geography, age, sex, comorbidities, um, but didn't link any of them together, um, even though ONS had already tried to link some of those together and tried to understand these patterns a bit more. Um, when it simply reported the findings and made no recommendations. Um, and it, made, it then became clear that there had been recommendations and there had been a full report of the stakeholder engagement, um, but that had not been published. Um, so people were asking, uh, what did this report add? Uh, what was the point of it? And what had been suppressed? And as a result of those uh, strong questions about the issue of what had been suppressed, the um, stakeholder engagement rapid review and recommendations were subsequently published. So looking at these two reports together, I thought it's worth asking what did we learn, if anything, what did we learn from these? And what directions they give us to thinking about policy responses? So the first report, this report on, on disparities across these different areas, um, didn't provide new information on mortality rates, but I think it did provide two new things, which perhaps we can use in trying to understand what's going on more, and which speak to some of the concerns that Mitzad raised as well. So firstly, it revealed differences in survival, as well as differences in mortality rates. So given infection, given being hospitalized with infections, some groups, and Bangladesh is particularly highlighted here, had less chance of surviving. The second thing was, I think, um, it revealed that was new was it had a, um, wasn't very extensively discussed, but it had some information on excess mortality that wasn't COVID related. Now, there's a general feeling that um, a lot of the excess um, mortality that isn't COVID related that's occurred over this period may be sort of hidden COVID mortality related to, um, in particular, to dementia and in care homes. Um, but clearly, given who's dying for minorities and the age profile, this isn't very likely here. So it raised questions about what's driving this ethnic um, disproportionalities in non-COVID mortality. So this is different from what was happening before. In addition, the, the stakeholder evidence and the rapid evidence review um, raised a number of points about issues around access to care and exclusion from care, um, about health existing health conditions um, and um, ethnic inequalities in health, about housing and housing conditions, and about occupation, and also about potential differential treatment of key workers. And so I think if we take these, these issues together, um, what what, 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 can, what, what, what can we say about them? Can, they, can, we, can, we, can we find more evidence that these are going on and how are they going on and how, are they, how relevant are they? 
So these findings, I think, both about um, some differences in survival and about um, excess mortalities of not COVID-related, both raise issues of are there differences in access to care or exclusion from care. They are suggestive evidence that that may be the case. There has been some other research, um, hospital, uh, hospital data, that suggests there, are, there, is no dif there aren't differences in, the, in seeking treatment and there aren't um, differences in severity when reaching hospital. But I think the, the, the case isn't out. These could be indicative signals that that's what's going on. Um, in terms of um, what are termed uh, comorbidities, um, I've mentioned that for the old white population, the comorbidity of dementia, um, which so that the, the, the hidden death from, from, from COVID, as it were, um, has been particularly strongly indicated. And we shouldn't forget about this is another of the, of the major inequalities we're seeing as a result of this disease. Frail people who are kind of very much out of sight. Um, but the, 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 the issues of, of uh, comorbidities for minority groups are much more around existing health inequalities that themselves have very long antecedents and much more embedded in issues of poverty and deprivation. And themselves can be linked to the housing issues. So in terms of housing, we know that housing um, can be linked to infection um, and overall risk, but it can also be linked to the ability to function economically at the time of crisis. So people who are living in overcrowded housing or very densely populated housing um, are have, have greater uh, challenges isolating um, and not getting infected, but they also probably have greater challenges in trying to work from home, trying to function effectively in that situation. And we know that, and the figures are stark here, for example, we know that overcrowding is experienced by 2% of white British compared to 30% of Bangladeshi households, with um, uh, black Africans and Pakistanis in the middle at 15, 16%. And we know that household size varies as well, so around 2.3 for white British. Um, and uh, Black Caribbean up to around um, four for Pakistani and Bangladeshi households. And we also know that some minorities are more likely to live in multi-generational households where they've got both children, working age, um, and older adults, which again raises issues around infection, but also around working and functioning effectively and children's education and protecting the different members of the household with their different concerns and different interests. We know this is the case of these multi-generational families are only around for about 1% white British households, but about 5% um, of um, Bangladeshi households, for example. And then the, uh, the, the final areas which has been talked a bit about is this issue of occupational exposure. And not just health workers, though health workers is clearly an area which is experiencing high death rates and potentially um, in, inequitable situations at work, which was mentioned a lot in the, in the stakeholder report. Um, but also other public facing roles, roles like um, security guards, taxi drivers, bus and coach drivers, chefs, where people may also in small marginal have less negotiating power about the conditions under the work, as well as not necessarily being financially able to work. And these are all, all, all areas where um, deaths are disproportionate, COVID deaths are disproportionate. So there seems to be a strong occupational link, which again, we can trace back to, okay, so how do people end up concentrated in these occupations. Why are 40% of security guards from a minority ethnic group, for example? So how do the recommendations of the PHE report match up to these issues? The recommendations focus on areas such as communication, data collection, 
culturally competent risk assessments and prevention campaigns. And then there's one final recommendation, which refers to the wider determinants of health inequalities and a very focus on ethnic health inequalities in particular. And I think this is unsatisfactory. I think it's unsatisfactory for a number of reasons. I think the focus on mitigation and cultural competence maybe has a role, but again, it relocates the issue back with minorities rather than relocating the issue, rather than locating the issue with society and with wider inequalities within society. So if we can just kind of fix the way we talk to people about COVID, then fewer people will die from it. I think that's, that's, a, um, that's not what, what I would have expected to see in terms of recommendations. There's nothing on the causes of um, long-term health conditions which may put people at greater risk. There's uh, nothing about the embeddedness of health in health promoting or health damaging contexts in these recommendations. And there's nothing about the role of poverty and discrimination directly on health. Um, and the lack of protection for employees that we saw very vividly in the tragic case in um, Bellingham, for example. And there's nothing really about the interaction of work with immigration status. And I think this is one big area where, where there is the big gap in these, even the more general uh, statements, don't really engage with the fact that we can't see areas of policy separately. We can't see um, immigration law separately from public health um, uh, work and legislation. So we know that immigrant workers are faced constraints such as not being able to not work if sick, um, not being supported by the state if laid off due to no recourse for public funds, for example. And we know that while 85% um, of working age black Africans are not UK born, 95% of black African care workers are not UK born. So they're likely to be particularly vulnerable. And overall, 2% um, of care workers in the UK have um, arrived in the last five years. And that's probably an understatement. So that's a lot of people. It may sound like a low percentage, 2%, but it's a lot of people who are potentially vulnerable in terms of their immigration status at a time of crisis. Similarly, overcrowded housing, if we talk about what housing, it's not accidental. It arises from pressures on housing and the constraints on local councils for, for, for building housing um, and from long histories of the way that um, housing is managed. So what we need, I think, is recommendations which focus on specific policies that get to some of these more core issues. And we need to see the connection between different areas of policy, that health policy and immigration policy, health policy and housing policy aren't separate areas, but, but the COVID-19 crisis has in a sense shown just how interconnected they are. And I think finally, the recommendations didn't spe specify ownership. Who should be responsible? What mechanisms might already be in place that could, could be used to help implement um, any recommendations? Um, and what minister will be taking responsibility for implementing them? All of these things I would have expected to see in a viable set of recommendations from a body that is in the position of Public Health England and which was specifically asked to write this report. So I think what we need to start thinking about is, is how there are possibilities or not, but I would hope there are, for a plan of action, for a, for a will and commitment to be embedded in government um, and at senior levels um, and to make these connections between different areas of policy and come up with specific recommendations. At present, for example, reneging on, on um, a remission of health surcharges and so on is not a step in the right direction. And I think these, we need to see the links with these quite specific areas of policy. So I'll stop there. I'm sure I've um, 
gone over slightly and I'm very interested to hear what others have to say. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lucinda. It's great listening to you, thinking about how policies can get to more core issues and the lack of interconnection between policy areas, which I'm sure we'll discuss more. So um, thanks again. And going to our final speaker before Heidi takes over as moderator, Kehinde, it's over to you now, please. Hi, so good afternoon. Uh, and thanks for the really interesting speech or talk, which has covered a lot of the ground uh, here as well. I think what I really want to say is the main thing that really took me by surprise by all of this is that anybody would be surprised that ethnic minorities uh, groups are more likely to have bad outcomes from COVID-19. I mean, I am by no means an expert in, in, in health, racial health inequalities, uh, but it was pretty obvious, blindingly obvious, if you've been paying attention, that this would happen. I mean, for all the reasons that everybody has, has mentioned, location in cities, uh, the issue of poverty, the issue of housing, the issue of public facing role. I mean, literally, I, I remember when this happened, I, I literally listed off all these things before all this research was done, because anybody paying any slight bit of attention would have already known this, right? So the question of why we are so surprised really is, is, is probably where we need to start. Like, why do we understand racism so badly that when something like this happens, there's no, there's no, it's like it's come out of the blue. It's like it struck us by surprise and slapped us in the face. And I think part of the reason that we do that is because our understanding of racism is so superficial. Like it is the way that we think about racism today still is in the, in the, is in the prejudice of individuals. Those interactions we've tried to legislate out of the public sphere. And we've missed the point. The racism is, has always been a matter of life and death. Like Black Lives Matter comes about as a slogan because the fundamental truth is that black life does not matter as much, has not been valued as much. And that's actually what makes the modern world, right? Slavery, colonialism, empire is all built on the idea um, that white life is superior and should be protected at all costs and our lives are disposable and they continue to be treated as such, which is, what, which is why um, very clearly you're going to have these kind of outcomes. And again, for most health areas, there are these kind of uh, health inequalities. So again, really, 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 really shouldn't have been any kind of surprise this is the case. So when we understand that black lives don't matter, and that's basically the problem, right? Then we also see that this intersection of the Black Lives Matter moment and the killing of George Floyd um, at the time of COVID, these things aren't separate things. These are actually the same thing. They are produced by exactly the same problem. And that is that basic problem. You know, the way that our system is organized is organized in a way uh, that our lives are disposable. And so in some ways, it's a perfect time for these protests uh, to emerge, right? And, also, and when we think about these issues of COVID, we should not think about it as an issue of health. This is not an issue of health inequality. Uh, this is actually an issue of the inequality more generally. And the symptoms of the inequalities in our society, racial inequality, include health, they include a disproportionate health outcomes, they include poverty, they include being more likely to be called by the police, both in, in, in America um, and elsewhere. And these are all symptoms of the same bigger problem. And actually, if you look at COVID, again, it explains this quite well, because COVID, if you look where it's massively impacted, has tended to be in Europe and in America, in predominantly white countries, like tore through them in, for many, many reasons. Um, and, not, and has been a, certainly a problem in other parts of the world, but not to the same extent. So, but then even when you say that, right, in these white majority countries, this has been the problem. This has been a huge problem. 
So then we're still more likely to be impacted. It tells you just how much this is a social problem. And this is the same case in America with the statistics there um, as well. And so what we're looking at is a social problem and we have to, and we have to, and I think that's the public health England can't possibly do this. You know, just, they're not built to deal with this. Like they just don't have the frame of reference to understand that this is a social problem uh, and needs much more bigger thinking about how we go forward. I mean, I think the other thing to also put into context is that COVID, if you look at the reaction here to COVID, has also shown the value that we put on white life. So the level of the worst case scenario of death, let's say you just let COVID run, it kills half a million people. It'd be terrible. I'm not saying we should do this. It would be a bad thing to do, right? But that level of death is a level of death that we are genuinely protected from because we live in the bubble of the worst. But in many parts of the world, that's day-to-day experience. 22,000 children die every single day from preventable reasons. Nine million people a year die from poverty. Almost all of those people are black and brown. Almost all of those people live in the underdeveloped world. In the parts of the world where we, we are protected from that kind of death and insulated and have this, this prosperity because they die, right? So every single year, 10, 9, 10 million people are dying um, because of white supremacy. And we don't really think about it. We don't really even consider that. But when we see those, 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 that existential threat come to Europe and come to America, we see the, the, the lockdown, we see the, we see the panic, we see the thing. And that's how we should treat the 22,000 children that die every day. That's how we should treat that issue. Unfortunately, it is not how we treat that issue at all. And one of the unintended consequences of, of lockdown, actually, of the protecting the bubble of Europe, is probably going to be that we're going to kill more people because of the poverty that's going to spread across the world uh, from the lockdown itself than actually die from COVID. I mean, I was reading something about tubular chlorosis. Just from TB, they think there'd probably be an extra 1.5 million deaths in the underdeveloped world. That's just from TB, let alone uh, the other deaths from poverty. So when we're thinking about COVID, we can't, shouldn't be thinking about it on the national level. And we should never, ever be thinking about racism on the national level either. The problem here is that black and brown life does not matter as much. And actually, you can see that far more clearly and starkly in the, in the underdeveloped world as much today as we ever could see. So I guess that all sounds really pessimistic, but hopefully it, it, this is an opportunity for us to really think racism is a matter of life and death, both here and abroad. And that is, that's the urgency with which we need to address these inequalities. And I'll end there. Thanks so much, Kahinda. I think I, I agree with you that we need to look at it as a global issue at a global level. And perhaps this is a critical juncture in which change can happen, but at least we're asking some of the questions that need to be asked. So Heidi, um, over to you to moderate this fascinating panel discussion. Thank you so much. Um, wow. I feel breathless, actually, with the scope and the range of those presentations, because I feel that they bring together all the contradictions that are there, the fundamental basic contradictions in the way that the COVID and Black Lives Matter have come together to expose the extent, and Kahinde, thank you very much, and McDad for that. Both of you talked about the, the framing, the racialized framing of this moment. And um, for me, uh, you know, that is, we cannot understand the impact um, on, our, on our brethren and our sistren 
without understanding the historical, the long arc of history and how it impacts on where we are today. And then Lucinda and Ross, the forensic detail of the statistics, which means that it's inescapable, you know, in, in the sense in which, you know, we can see the facts. And I think what the, the, the two dynamics here between, you know, looking at the racialized discourse and the facts and the science is, um, is what blinds us, what it makes us unable to see the truth um, around um, what's going on. So I think that we can, if we can have a discussion where we look at these, this tension between science and, um, and the sociology, the social facts, um, I think that's where we can drill down and see a little bit more what's going on. So I want to begin um, by asking Ross a question around, um, you know, uh, drilling down into the granular detail of um, some of the scientific um, um, and statistics. I I'm always concerned by where do you get your stats from <laughs> and how good they are. I mean, Actually, I listen a lot to Radio 4. I always have it on in the background. And there's more and more stats and, and the government reports every day when they give their announcements. There's more and more statistics. And I keep thinking, how do they get them so fast? How do they know um, that they're right? How do we know that they're right? Are we being blinded with science here? Thanks, Heidi. Um, I agree. It's a little bit exhausting sometimes, isn't it, with the constant stream of of new numbers and hor horrible numbers as well um and new research and sometimes it's hard to interpret some of the the, the research is coming out every week because some of the numbers kind of sound like they're saying the same thing um but actually there's often a bit of nuance to what each piece of research is actually uncovering um and that i think can sometimes get lost in in some of the some of the coverage in the media and some of the discussion afterwards in terms of um the numbers that that we've used uh, myself and, and lucinda and, and a few other studies as well we're, we're largely relying on um the numbers provided by the office for national statistics um and as somebody who's been um, using these numbers regularly and monitoring what they've been putting out on a weekly basis i think it looks like they've done a, a great job over these last um, few months in terms of providing timely um, timely data to help us understand as, as best as possible what is what is going on in the country um, it's true that initially there wasn't um, any data published on uh, the breakdown of, of ethnicity in the, in the deaths so there was a bit of a, a lag before um, we did understand concretely um, I mean, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence, but there was a bit, there was a bit of a lag before we understood concretely the extent of these inequalities. Um, but I think now we do have quite timely data, at least at the population level, to understand that there are these, these, these large disproportionalities. And more and more, I think, researchers in the medical sphere are, are being able to access hospital um, level records to really drill down at some of the more specific explanatory factors. So what is the role of, of these pre-existing health inequalities pre-crisis? Um, what is the role of local level um, deprivation? 
Um, having said that, there, is, there does still seem to be some difficulties in understanding other aspects of these inequalities, such as the role of occupation, where we don't have particularly up-to-date information on the occupation that um, individuals are doing in a way that we can link with, um, with, with their health outcomes, which has made it difficult to really make that very final direct link between, between the occupational exposure and, and these outcomes, even though there's a range of kind of smoking gun evidence now that, um, that that seems to be a key consideration. Yeah, it does. You know, there's a very good question here from um, Francesca, and she's from the Filipino community. And she says, you know, when we're looking at health stats, um, and I know this is an area in the health inequalities, um, she says the Filipino community is not represented. And, um, and yet they have the highest COVID-19 death rates amongst the NHS staff. So how can you record this data, um, as she's saying, um, because they are the driving force on the front line and yet they're not recognized. And I know Lucinda, I'm always going on about this, you know, what about, you know, Filipina um, care workers, Filipina nurses, um, you know, what we call BAME, and I hate that word, but it's black and minority ethnic. It's a, a lump sum, yet there are so many granular differences and uh, different locations. Um, and as you were saying, Lucinda, the immigration um, status of people needs to be part of any kind of policy going forward. But McDad, how can you, how can you answer Francesca's question? How can they be recognized? I mean, I think you, you've touched on, on most of, of what I was going to say, but actually it's quite difficult to, to decide what your ethnic categories are or what they mean or, or why you're collecting data on particular ethnicities. And is it because these are your racialized groups or is it because of something inherent in these people that make them something? Or is it because of where they're born or is it because of certain cultural practices that they engage? So, I think it's a really, well, I'm not a sociologist. I, I don't want to get too much into that, but I think it, it's quite a tricky question and, and something that you often hear from people researching in these areas is the numbers are just not big enough to not group everybody together. So let's just group everybody together. And, and I don't think that's a very satisfactory answer uh, given that everybody has very different experiences of uh, how ethnicity impacts on, on their interactions with society. And so I think it's something that we really need to think about. And, and I suppose we, we just have to be very careful that we, we, there's some conceptual or theoretical basis to, to the categories that we, we collect data on. And then we analyze them in a way that is meaningful. And, and I guess in terms of health inequalities, a lot of that meaningfulness comes from how racism impacts on different groups and, and whether it's immigration or whether it's other forms of, of, of racism. And so, so I think something, some more thinking around why are we collecting that data? Or how are we analyzing it? Where does it uh, lead us? And, and, that, and, and I don't know anything specific about the Filipino group, but, but I hope that helps. Mm. I mean, I think, sorry, Lucinda, you want to come back on that? Could I just add something? Yes, I mean, I think, I think the question really highlights also how it's important to individuals to be recognized, how they recognize them, themselves. And so, it's not just about um, 
sociological con constructs that make sense. It's also, as Francesca is saying, I am a Filipina, I, that's, that's how I define, and we need ways of, of measuring that recognize that. And we do to some extent, though again, there is this um, problem of, 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 easy, of, these, of different groups easily getting aggregated. Um, and then there's that, uh, and then there's a question of in what sense do people define us as Filipinos for this context? Is, is, it, is it on the basis of country of birth? Is it on being recently arrived? Is it, in, is it actually something about the community they live in? Um, but that seems to be a really part, important part of, the, of, has to be a really important part of the measurement. Um, and that we should, and we should not, we should not be analysing groups that are aggregated to a meaningless level as well. So. Should never be doing BAME analysis, I think. Kahinde, still on the point of racial categorization, because I do think that it's one of the root, the root evils. I mean, I think racial categorization is the black man's burden because we are categorized and um, separated and differentiated and analyzed and objectified through these categories. But if we didn't have them, we wouldn't know about the high rates of death. So there's always this catch-22. How do we solve this problem? Um, I think, so I mean, there is a big, like there is a the major problem in terms of the, the, the granular detail of say, when you get Filipino communities, there's always going to be numbers. And every time you're looking at stats, it's always going to be numbers. And this is why you tend to conflate things and, and, and put them together. Um, then it's not just numbers though because you know the numbers change and how people are categorized changes i mean the census change it changes every every time they do it basically to have different to have different categories and so we always ha also have to be wary about how we are categorized from above i mean that's the important thing with the racial that is a top-down classification where the state or 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 largely white sociology says look this is what the category should look like but also we say look we also categorize ourselves grand off as well so a concept like blackness, for example, very different to race, like a very different concept to race, which has its own meanings, history, and is really important as a source uh, for us to resist. So I think it's always important to, to separate out those two kinds of classification. But when you're dealing with data from the state, it's always going to be what it is. It's going to be top down and it is the best we probably can get. And I think if you compare, you know, Brit well, well, Britain's crashing out of Europe in January now for definite and um, if you look at the situation in most European countries, they don't they don't collect data uh, based on race at all, and it's not like they're places of harmonies, of racial harmony. But we actually don't know any of the information about somewhere like France, for example, which is probably worse in many ways uh, than Britain. So it's an evil that we're going to have to live with to describe the situation we're in, unfortunately. I've, um, I just I I just think that maybe this is a moment and Dad, you raised the issue about eugenics and um and this is a, a, a um an ugly um and um difficult moment in in history um and you know i was listening to a lecture from um paul gilroy and he was talking about this moment being one in which there's a resurgence really of the eugenic agenda in the sense of the the way in which um, black bodies are being re-racialized um, at this moment um, so it 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 is a very i suppose a very difficult topic to think about and kahinde used the word really well disposable bodies 
because when bodies become disposable, um, you know, they are, um, you know, open to, to, um, yeah, being disposed of. So I, I just think that, yeah, those issues are really important to keep on the table. I have another question here, more about the economy. And Rex asks um, that the economy, um, economic activity is plummeting. Should more emphasis be placed on opening the economy back up in order to stop impoverishing those already most vulnerable? Um, question for Mikdad and Ross and Kahinde. <laughs> Who would like to take it? I can say something to start. Um, so, so I guess that the problem is is not whether the economy is open or not. The problem is that some people are impoverished or not. And, and so that I think if we look at it that way around, then, then there's multiple ways of dealing with people's impoverishment. And, and I guess in, in some of the countries, like in Spain, they're thinking about universal basic income. Uh, we've got to think about the structures that have actually made people impoverished in the first place. And, and uh, exposing them to virus risk isn't the only way of dealing with economic problems. So it's just worth keeping that in mind. Ross, would you like to respond to that? Uh, sure. I mean, that's obviously one of the kind of big macro questions for government at the moment. But I think obviously the important thing is that um, you can't really separate them. <laughs> the, the public health crisis and the and the economic crisis, um, the economic recovery can't really be secured unless the public health crisis is, un is under con under control, right? Because otherwise, we'll have to go. There'll be more localized lockdowns, maybe more another national lockdown if if the public health crisis isn't controlled. So these are intertwined, and obviously, as McDad says, there is um, ways of preventing impoverishment. Um, even with restrictions on the economy still in place. Um, so it, it's, it's a complex issue, but there are choices there. Um, I know in your presentations, the, the, the long-term um, effects on um, ethnic minorities and going forward is going to be immense. Lucinda, you talked about that in terms of um, um, education, health, um, uh, jobs, income, and I know from the report that you wrote, one of the most striking things I think that that, that um, you know really shocked me was that um, when the lockdown was announced, uh, ethnic minorities on the whole, particularly Bangladeshi and Pakistanis, only would have, if they were lucky, one month of savings, but white, the white majority could have three or four months of savings so that you know their income and the impact on them was was enormous with the lockdown i don't know if you'd like to respond to that lucinda the long term yeah so um so, so i think yes i think it's a very important point it relates um uh, so this was uh, some, some, some analysis of um liquid assets that the that, that ross did that um, suggested there were big differences and they weren't all in the most in the ways you'd expect. So we often think that the experience of Pakistanis and Bangladeshi economically is very similar, but Pakistanis had, had far more liquid assets to draw on than um, Bangladeshis and black Africans, for example, in, in that, in, in that um, 
analysis. And I think it just highlights the levels of insecurity that underpin some of people's work situations. That um, it relates again a bit to what Ross said about, you know, that there are that it's not necessarily about an either or, it's about how you may ensure that people aren't in a situation of such precarity. And I think we've, what we're seeing is in part the consequence of uh, long term, uh, a, a long period of um, um, austerity, which has impacted some families more than others, um, and which also means that there's less um, protection going forward. And I think that's in a sense the crucial issue about, the, about, the, about economic survival is how good um, are people's individual safety nets, but also how good are the, are the state safety nets and are they working for people in the ways they should. So we've seen a lot of measures come into place, but we know that the furlough, furlough scheme is going to end. Um, is it going to end at the right time for everybody, um, given that it's, it's, it's graduated, but people are, people's jobs may return to work may, may differ? Um, and, is it, is, and is it reaching the people it most needs to reach? So, I think there is, there, there is again, these, these sorts of figures highlight the extent to which there, are, there, is, um, uh, yeah, there is insufficient security, that people are, people are leading, leading precarious or vulnerable lives in terms of their, their access to security. And if there isn't a strong state safety net um, to bridge that, then, then there are really, really big issues. I'm not sure if that quite answers your question, but... Well, I, and again, it's a, it's, it's a policy choice. It's a policy choice about how generous we make the, 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 um, the safety net, how, how we administer um, uh, things like universal credit and income support um, benefits. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not written in stone. There, 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 are, there are choices that can be made, and there are choices that can be made relative to other areas of spending as well. I think I've got a question. I mean, it follows on from your answer, um, Lucinda from Maya Campbell. And I think I'll ask this to Kahinde because, uh, you know, drawing on your, you know, Kahinde, your, um, your experience on the ground, working in the black community, teaching um, black studies um, um, uh, in Birmingham, Maya asks about the mental health impact um, on um, black and minority ethnic people and how is it being tracked? Um, she says, anecdotally, the picture doesn't look good. Um, would you like to, to explore that a little bit, the mental health impact on our communities? I just know from my own experience how objectified and difficult um, it, it has been when, you know, n people I know come up to me and say, um, don't worry, Heidi, you just need to get a shot of vitamin D, you know, and there is this sort of belittling of it. And you can't explain the enormity that your friends are dying and that you yourself are at risk. So can you explore that for me, Kehinde? Um, yeah, so I mean, generally, again, one of the symptoms of racism is that there are higher incidences of mental health problems in minority communities because of the general pressures that we have to live with and face. And some of those pressures, like you said, you can't really explain. It's just a daily experience of it. And I think particularly, you know, well, there's two things which have made that really worse in this. I mean, one is the deaths from COVID. So, you know, we work with at the university, we had a lot of black students and we had so many, almost all of the students have had a bereavement in their family. I know I've had a bereavement in my family. Most of it's, I think the actual level of which uh, these deaths are disproportionate actually gets played out in, in lived experience. And that's make, making, there's a lot of bereavement around this time in communities. And there's a lot of stress more generally. Then you add in lockdown, economic uncertainty, that's certainly not helping anybody. 
um, being stuck in, you know, we are more likely to live in cities, are more likely to live in um, not as good accommodation, right? So, you know, being in lockdown in those, con in those conditions is obviously going to exacerbate mental health issues as well. So there's a number of factors we should just make, we should just take in what was already bad and just making it really far worse. And I don't think this has really been addressed. I, I don't see that it has been addressed. And going forward, it's probably not going to get any better either. Thinking about impact on young people on schools as well. I mean, really, 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 the mental health aspect of this is, a, is an area I think we do need to put a lot more focus on. And just, you know, Deborah Croft, um, Kahinde, she said, this is directly to you, and I know I'm asking one question after the other, but she says, how do you stay hopeful? Hopeful? Yeah, in, yeah, given what you're saying. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really hopeful. I mean, look, it's bleak. It's really bad. Like, don't get it right. Like, I think you have to understand that like, the level to which this is, this is terrible. It's, 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 it's actually in the very basic operating system of the function that we, that we live in is racism, right? So that can seem a bit unhopeful and pessimistic, but it's not. Because once we understand that, then we understand we need to make radical changes that, you know, this doesn't have to be the way it is. You know, the West is actually very young. It's a blip on the timeline of history. And at some point we need to realize we need real transformative change. And I've always believed that revolution is possible. Uh, we just need to understand that that's what we need to do. And this, things like this will hopefully tell us that we have no alternative to do that so that's what that's why i'm hopeful well i think we should go global in that sense as we are a blip <laughs> in the timeline but um uh this is a question from some from from a person from brazil and uh, economics candidate at the university of brasilia and he asks given the social and racial inequalities that arise from the historical um, and economical backgrounds um what would a directed policy be to mitigate these impacts look like? So he's saying um, basically, and I think McDad, I'll ask you this question. Um, how would policies to mitigate the impacts um, about social and racial inequalities look like? I think it's, it's a really difficult question. It's huge. In, in very general terms, it's not. Uh, you know, there's this. I mean, you know, when when we're when we're putting uh, when we're placing the the problem in in black and brown bodies, we talk about vitamin D as an answer. You know, as a convenient pill to take to to solve this problem. And when we flip it around and say racism is a problem, and and. Actually, there's a, there's a study from the University of Oxford which used this um, beta blocker uh, and it used it to medicate people and then test how their implicit racial bias has changed. And they found that by taking this pill, it completely eliminated implicit racial bias in, in the people who took the pill. And so, so there's this kind of really bizarre way of if you want to medicalize everything, you could treat everybody with this really bizarre pill. And, and then you think that's, that's horrific. What are you saying? Why, how can you medicate away whiteness? That's terrible, right? And then you think, so actually, maybe you can't just medicate away with vitamin D or with beta blockers. Maybe you need to do big structural changes or revolution, as Kanda says. Or, you know, like it, I don't think there's any simple answer to this. Mm. Kahinde, did you hear McDad's answer to that question? 
Uh, I did. Sorry, I have uh, ch- children. Looking at the children, so I had to dip out <laughs> for a second. But I did catch the end of it, and I think it's true. Like, you know, there are there is no there is no way you can reform this problem out. You do need to start thinking about big, big, big changes. And now the debate is about reparations, for example. I mean, a mass transfer of wealth. Well, this is a this is basically the wealth and resources have been taken from many people and given to a few people. And until we're talking about redressing that, then we're not having a serious conversation. On a practical level, though, um, here, um, uh, Chuma, a psychiatrist from South London, asks, are there any statistics uh, about the proportion of different ethnicities who can access the furlough scheme um, because it's adding to the pressure? And again, this goes back to the fact, I suppose, you know, we can talk about the big picture, but when we drill down, people are surviving at the moment and, you know, access to furlough and, um, and self-employed um, um, payments and so on have been very difficult for um, a lot of ethnic minorities. Lucinda, is there any way that we can, um, you know, address Tumor's question, like, how do we know who's accessing the furlough scheme and who's so not? Yeah, so it's 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 um, getting information in kind of real time is quite is quite tricky. Tricky, but we are starting to get information out. Um, there was a, a report um, from the Social Metrics Commission published today, um, which some of you may have seen, um, and that um, it's not quite the same same question, but it did look at impacts by um, uh, um, impacts of COVID by where in the poverty distribution they were. So people who were poorer were, were, were suffering more. Um, uh, some of them were furloughed, um, um, but they were more likely to also to, to lost a job rather than be, um, uh, uh, rather than, well, they were, so they were more likely to be furloughed to have lost a job and to have um, reduced hours rather than to be staying in work if they were, if they put, if they were poorer. Um, this doesn't mean that that's um, predominantly minority groups there in that group, but given what we know about the distribution of income and distribution of poverty, that tells us something. And there, there, it should be possible to, to use that to answer that question. So we also know, uh, are finding a little bit more about, about self-employment. So the self-employment compensation scheme has been relatively generous, but we know that um, it doesn't cover everybody and it interacts with um, uh, um, uh, universal credit claims um, in complicated ways, uh, which, have partly been, which have partly been addressed, but not fully. Um, and there was data coming out that um, I've just started looking at that um, uh, we can use to see whether people who are self-employed from different groups have lost income to the same extent. And so far, it looks like um, it is an uneven pattern, um, which is related again to the sort of nature, the types of job, the types of unemployment. Um, so yes, yeah, so we can get these, we, we will in time get that information. It's still quite early stages to have good statistics but they will come. Um, and then that will give more, more information on who is, who, is, who is covered and who is not covered, which I think is a crucial issue. And it's also, I think I'm going back to the point about um, uh, mitigating. I mean, the, 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 yes, there is no, there's no magic bullet, but um, uh, uh, Ross and I are working on a study of inequality more generally. And I think the extent to which their societies are more or less unequal has impacts for those um, who are more likely to Fall to fall out of that system, fall out of the bottom. So a more equal society is something to aim for. 
benefits all of those that are at the bottom, but will, will disproportionately benefit the most disadvantaged. So I think there's a sort of bigger, um, bigger sort of structural change that we'll have um, that we could look for there as well. Gosh, it's unbelievable, but lots and lots of people are writing in from Nigeria, from Indonesia, from all over the world. So there's a lot of global questions coming up. Um, and uh, here's a question on, um, does the impact on ethnic minorities in the UK follow a global trend? Uh, and is the data accessible to the public in other countries as it is in Britain? Um, McDad. You're the data man, Mel. Can they get the same kind of data globally so, on other pandemics? Well, I mean, even in, in this pandemic, I think like Kahinda already made the point that in, in some countries like France, they don't recognize ethnicity as, as, a, as a concept. And, and so they don't collect any data. And, and, and I guess it's just kind of Thinking back to you know the question you raised earlier about what are the right categories and what do these categories mean? What what does it mean to be an ethnicity in one country versus another country? And is there anything comparable to be said about those things? I, I don't think it's so. First of all, I don't think that the, the data is collected everywhere. Some data is collected in some places. In the U.S., you get bits of patchy data, uh, which is not centralized. Um, here we've got kind of national data, which is of a variable quality. Uh, in other countries, you collect different things. In India, we collect data on caste, for example. Um, but but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure um, I've answered you very well, but it, it's very difficult to, to compare what these different, you know, being black in Nigeria means something different to being black in Britain. Um, so, so what do these things mean and, and what are we trying to say by comparing them or analyzing them uh, is unclear. Mm. I mean, Catherine writes here, she says, and I think this is a response to your, you know, struggle with that question. She says the master's tools would not dismantle the master's house, which we know is a saying from um, Audrey Lord. I have a badge here that Sarah Ahmed gave me about the master's tools will not dismantle the master's <laughs> so the categories and the way in which we talk about race is is always um, um, befuddles us so um, I never know if, what the facts are um, yeah I'm just looking at some more questions there's some more global questions here um, um, gosh please state screen um, Sheikhna, a Nigerian anthropology law student in London, says economic growth accompanied by worsening social outcomes is not a success, it's a failure. What are your thoughts on this? Economic growth accompanied by worsening social outcomes is not a success, it's a failure. What are your thoughts on this? Kahinde, it, to me, it seems like it's, um, you know, uh, what you talked about being in a white bubble in the West, um, that we have certain luxuries and yet um, it's, uh, it's um, uh, a privilege and yet with those, all these, um, you know, TB, malaria, poverty around the world. Um, maybe your thoughts on this question. Um, it's yes. not a success. <laughs> No, I mean, that, and that is thinking about what the when we change our economic model, 
fighting for growth has to just end this. End growth. What does growth mean if, if growth's not shared out fairly? Or if, more importantly, the growth in the West is actually built on the exploitation and depleting of resources elsewhere. Um, so, for example, I mean, if you look at GDP growth in, on the African continent, you could say, oh, look, is, aren't things getting better? Uh, take South Africa, for example, uh, a growing economy, but one of the most unequal societies in the whole world, actually. And actually, if you look over the, the growth since post-apartheid, uh, may be uh, positive, but actually the inequality is it's actually probably worse than it was 20 years ago. And if that's that's so, if we're looking for growth, it's just the wrong, it's just a completely wrong metric to judge progress. Uh, but unfortunately, it is the metric which is the dominant one for how we judge everything. So yeah, getting rid of a growth as a, as a as a ambition is the very first place to start with the economy. Well, I have a question here. Um, uh, um, from New Zealand, um, from a Maori perspective, uh, stroke Western perspective, um, and asks, um, how can universities and academics do more to vocalize inequalities and offer alternatives to tackle inequality and injustice? So what can we do in our institutions um, to vocalize inequalities and to, I suppose to give other models of, of change. Um, Lucinda, I thought it was really interesting when you were doing the critique of Public Health England, you know, uh, the missing parts, <laughs> the mysterious missing parts from the report, because there there was, um, uh, you t it was almost like a, a, a triad of, you know, immigration, housing, and the economy these are these were areas that were missing from the report if we were going to um you know as academics and researchers um what sort of alternatives would we give how would we insert like immigration how could we link it together with um with with health and what's going on so well um so that's what I try to do. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know. It was good. <laughs> I, my, I feel it's my, uh, my raison d'etre. So, um, uh, I mean, there's been some discussion about, you know, the, the value of statistics and, and um, uh, yes, they can, be, they can be misused and misread. But on the other hand, if we don't have information, we have no starting place. We don't know that these things, bad things are happening. So, um, part of it is about producing the information. The other part is trying to persuade people to listen to it. Um, that's harder because uh, um, people tend to want to listen to what they think they already know. Um, we all do. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just as bad. Um, but uh, but I think that's that's the role of academics. I think there's so there's that there's that what we do research for and how we try and make it heard and how we try and insert into particular debates at particular times. Um, and I suppppose the other bit of it is what we do at the end and you know sort of more individual level so I think there's um, uh, things like um, uh, um, mentoring I think schemes for schemes for students I think there's how we um, implement um, trying to implement what we what we what we think we believe in actually at the interpersonal level so um, yeah so 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 uh, um, mentoring of minority students mentoring of women students as well um, that's another thing I'm Quite, quite concerned about um, uh, uh, and PhD candidates um, and also you know, uh, trying to see trying to scrutinize our own institutions as far as we can um, and question question them um, so I think you need to do it at the, at the different levels 
Um, and then finally, there's the um, there's sort of more local level. I think we're all embedded in in regions and communities, and as academics, we have tools that maybe we can use in those contexts. So um, I'm in London, trying to work um, with you know with with, with London um, and um, the resources of knowledge and resources that they have to try and see if there's any way I can add to that. I have a question here, Ross. I I I. I, I... I'm going to ask you, but um, by Eldred Harrington, do the speakers feel, i.e. you, Ross, uh, <laughs> that um, that change representation within government and healthcare pegged at 19%, I don't know what that is though, by Sir Simon Stevens, will improve the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities? Um, do you understand? What is the 19%? I don't understand that question. No, actually. no, we'll have to. Sorry, do <laughs> I thought I, I thought it was something. Does anyone know the nineteen percent of Sir Stevens? Anyway, no, we will leave that question. <laughs> I wonder if it's a typo. One percent, maybe. Yeah, that's it's. I I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't quite get it. Um. Um. Yes. We're getting near the end of the event. I, I think we might have time for one quick question. Or uh, no question. I'm just looking. Um, I think I've done all the questions that I, there was, um, uh, I, think that, I think I've done all the questions that, that I've got in front of me, yes. Because the other ones are too big and we've only got like two minutes left. <laughs> Exactly. Thanks so much, Heidi. Thanks for moderating. It's, it's been fascinating listening to the discussion. So ladies and gentlemen, um, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity for both me and I think for um, all of us to listen to the panel and to the discussion afterwards. Thank you very much for taking part today. Um, we're very grateful that you could find the time in your busy schedules to be with us. A special thanks to you, Heidi, for moderating today's event. And from all of us at the LSE, we wish you well and hope to see you at another event very soon, be it virtual or in person. And if you've enjoyed today's event, um, you can check out our website for further information. Thank you very much. And thank you everyone on the panel. And um, that's it for today. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 Bye.